Good morning to you all. It's great to see you today on the last Sunday of this month, and uh, we're going to get to more of that uh, in just a moment, talking about what that truly means. We've been in a series, um, if you've been here during January, uh, celebrating the uh, time and the season of Epiphany, and we're doing it through in a series called Aha Moments with God. And we've uh, defined that as um, those moments in life when a truth comes front and center in our life, And because of it, either seeing it for the first time or in a new way, we are transformed. We're changed. Uh, Ultimately, today what we're going to talk about is one of the reasons you're on this earth. And uh, it will determine today what your life really is all about when it's said and done. We'll get to that shortly, but I want to start with this question. What is the Bible really all about? Think about this question for a moment. What is the Bible really all about? You know, historically, there have been two approaches to that question. The first approach is what is known as the topical approach, or the synchronic reading of the Bible. What that means is that people ask the question what the Bible is about, and the answer is, the Bible teaches us how to live. So we have this topical approach. So when you look at the Bible, what people do is they ask questions like, what does the Bible say about God and what does it say about Jesus? What does it say about relationships and marriage and, you know, money? What does it say about worry? That kind of stuff. What the Bible is basically in that situation is a reference book. You ask the Bible a question, you look at the whole Bible, it says, here's what it says, and you get an answer. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong But there are, at times, huge problems with reading the Bible like that. One of the main problems with reading it like that is if you read the Bible primarily as a reference book in your life, then inevitably what the Bible does is it centers on me. What I'm supposed to be doing. The center of the Bible is me, what I need when we approach the Bible that way. Now there is a second way to read the Bible. And the second way to read it is as a single unified story with a plot. And if you read the Bible as a single unified story with a plot, and you ask the question, what is the story about? What you'll see is the story is about God saving the world. The plot line of the Bible basically happens in kind of four movements. Uh, Creation, the fall, redemption, and then consummation. In other words, God has created us because he loves us, but we have sinned, we have lost relationship with God, but he is on a mission to save us and to come back and redeem us, and eventually, eventually he's going to restore and heal and redeem everything. Now, if you read the Bible like that, if you read it what experts call diachronically as a true story of what God is doing, then what you see is that the Bible is primarily about God and what he has done. It's not about us. It's not about who we are or what we need. In other words, what this does is it gets us out of this individual approach to the Bible, this individualistic approach that says the Bible is here to teach me what I need to do so God doesn't get mad at me and he will bless me. (laughs) It gets us out of this kind of myopic vision that says the Bible is actually about God's plan to renew the world. To put it bluntly, it's about the mission of God. The Bible is about the mission of God. 
And what that means is that being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is about mission. To be a Christian means to be saved by the mission of God and then to join him in his great mission. The word mission actually comes from a very interesting Latin word, missio, which means simply sent. This is kind of what Jesus prayed in John's gospel. He says, just as you have sent me into the world, Father, so I send them into the world. I don't know if you know this, friends, but your life really is all about mission. Whether you're in business or the arts or academics, whether you're a student or in full-time ministry, whether you're a parent, whether you're a mother, father, sister, brother, if you are a Christ follower, you are on a mission. This is why you still have breath in your body. This is still why there's time on your clock. If there's ability in your body, God says, I have a plan for you being a part of what I'm doing. Now, if this is true, if the Bible really is about the mission of God, and if we are on a mission, and if the church, the body of Christ, is part of that mission then it really, really should give us a very clear picture of what the Bible and the church really is about. And it also tells us what the church is not. See, here's the deal. If the church is doing the mission of God, it does not stand still. Because if it stands still, it actually begins to regress. You remember this classic passage from the book of Revelation. John's Revelation says, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. And he goes on to talk about how this attitude of prosperity has kind of messed up the people's approach to life. And it made them go through life, see if this sounds familiar, it made them go through life seeing themselves as consumers And when that happens, there's a lot of bad stuff happens to you spiritually. You know, this is a huge problem in our culture today. We live in a world of service providers. We think of ourselves primarily as consumers. For example, there's health service providers, elderly care service providers, pet care, lawn care. There's the food service industry, the home service industry, the gardening industry, financial services. And what these things do is they all cater to what? My needs. We are bombarded. I mean bombarded with messages from people saying, we will cater to your needs if you become our customer. If you don't believe me, join us for the Super Bowl and we'll watch all the ads together. And what this does is it colors the way we think about the church until now... People start to think about the church, even subconsciously. And we don't use this word, but, but we kind of think of the church as a religious service provider. Provide the service, provide the sermon, baptize, marry, and bury. And when this happens, friends, fundamentally a shift goes on. And no longer does a religious service provider create disciples. Now what it does is it just puts on good services. In a religious service provider organization, ministry is something the pastors or the staff people do, and the people consume, and then they evaluate. This is an amazing... Every time now I call an organization, I get a request to answer a quick and brief survey. 
that last about 12 minutes. <laughs> In a religious service provider, we don't think so much about Jesus saying, hey, go into the world. Now, we hear stuff like that, and of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that you move to a different part of the world. It means you go into your school, into your work, into your office, into your home, into your neighborhood, into your city, and you be a little kingdom bearer for God. But instead of that, what we start doing is we start measuring success in some very, very, very trivial ways. How many people come to our church? Never, how many people are going out into God's Word? In a religious uh, service provider, the focus shifts from passionate urgency about a world that desperately needs Jesus to this thing of complacency because, listen, it's about my life and my home and my little church. And if everything's going okay there, then we're all right. Let me make this clear so we understand kind of what we're talking about today. The church does not exist as a religious service provider. Jesus never came and said, I have come that there might be a religious service provider that serves spiritual consumers. He came on mission. And he says, I want to invite you into this mission I have. That is the church. I'll kind of paint a picture for you here. The institutional church, what we call the little C church, because, you know, the church is really everybody, right? That's big C church. But just the little C church, what has happened is we have stood right in the middle of the world. And we have said, listen, if you want to impact the world, come through us. If you'll join our programs and our plans and our agenda, we'll go and we'll impact the world. I've been thinking a lot about this over the last three or four years. Here's the problem with that model. First of all, what about all the people who don't fit perfectly in the church setting? Well, what happens to them is they get tossed overboard. Secondly, everything kind of gets bottlenecked up into the organizational structure of the church. So what we have is a few people doing ministry, and then we have tons of people watching ministry. Third, it doesn't really respect and honor who you are and who God made you to be. For example, it doesn't matter if you're a dancer or if you're an artist or if you're an electrician or if you're an entrepreneur or if you're a mechanic. Because, see, what we really need are ushers and people who can lead Bible studies. (laughs) So if you can do that, come on in. But maybe we should start with who did God make you to be? And then how can, how can we come alongside you and each other and empower you to do that? I'm going to give you a story. A lady named Rita was sitting in her church one day listening to a sermon. And she heard about this place called uh, Bloom Cafe. And Bloom Cafe was started by a woman named Ruth. And she had this passion in her life. This was her passion. She loved to bake and decorate cakes. And somehow... Does She had this creative idea to send cakes to Cambodia. Help women uh, out by basically giving cakes and uh, it would free them from trafficking. So Rita heard this story about this woman named Ruth. 
And she said, you know, I'm never going to go to Cambodia. But I love making cakes. So I wonder, how can I use that? How can I direct that with God's mission? So what she did is she went to the different shelters in her community. And what she started doing was making birthday cakes for the kids who were temporarily housed in these shelters. In just a few months, just three or four months, she made 50 cakes for kids in her community. Listen to this. She got letters and responses from people. Here's one. Rita, what joy it is for these two days when we saw, or these two young people, when we saw their cakes made on their birthday. Xavier is autistic, but he was still able to register that he was thrilled. He really thought it was a real Lego and not a cake. (laughs) Destiny and her mom were blown away to think that you managed to create a Dragon Ball Z cake in red and black. She wouldn't even cut it. She just loved it and wanted to sit and look at it. Michael and his family were so thrilled about the cake, they waited for us early on Sunday morning. His dad had never spoken a word to us before, but he was so moved by the generosity shown to his son that he started to talk about his life. Isn't it amazing how God can use a cake? Now here's the thing, it doesn't have to look like that. One of my favorite speakers is a guy, I've told you this before, Tony Campalo. When his wife Peggy was a stay-at-home mom, people used to always ask her, what do you do for a living? Used to irritate the fire out of her. So she finally came and she said to them, she would start and respond to them, and she would say, I am socializing two homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition so that they can be equipped to become agents of transformation for the new social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God had in mind from the beginning of time. And then she would look at him and she would say, so what do you do? (laughs) See, it can look like Rita. It can look like Peggy. It's really an attitude more than an action. It's like Dallas Ward talks about in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He says, think about and do what Jesus would do if he were you. If Jesus had your family, your job, your schedule, your friends, your bank account, what would he do? How would he live? And I'll tell you something, every Christ follower thought about this. If every person thought of themselves as on mission, what would happen? Well, one of the things that would happen is that we would go from being kind of building-centric to being relationship-centric. The church would be a who and not a what. We'd be primarily deployed, not primarily gathered. By the way, this is a model the church talked about. One of them is in Ephesians. Paul is talking. He says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. It does not say he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors to do the works of service on behalf of the people who want to give money and sit back. Now, this is a completely different vision, friends. The reason it's so powerful is because what it means is God wants to use you. Young people, listen to me. You, right now, in your life, where you're at. Moms and dads, right now, at this season of your life, where you're at. However, if the mission of Jesus is going to be our mission, 
what has to happen is some light bulbs have to come on. We're going to have this aha moment. And I want to tell you, I had this aha moment in my life about 25 years ago. You have to decide what you're going to do with your life and this whole decision of mission and ministry versus being a service provider. We're going to walk through it for a second. There's a few truths you have to come to grips with. The first truth you have to own is this. You have to accept your calling. Now, I'm going to tell you, friends, it is a serious thing to have a calling. But there are so many misconceptions about this, it's not even funny. One of them is that a calling is only reserved for a few real spiritual people like Billy Graham or Bono. I thought that was funny. Another one, that calling is only present if somebody has kind of this mystical, very dramatic experience. Like, if you don't have like a road to Damascus experience like Paul, or if you don't hit rock rock bottom and go to rehab six times, or if you don't have like a burning bush experience like Moses, I want to tell you, if you think that way, absolutely you will miss your calling. Another misconception is that a calling is this kind of glamorous, romanticized idea that makes your life a nonstop experience of passionate adventure and urgency. (laughs) There was a letter written to Dear Abby. It was awesome. This person was complaining. They said, I don't think I'm clear on my life's calling. And the letter was written by a 14-year-old kid. Some people talk about this and they say, I don't, I have no idea how to choose a calling. Here's what I want you to know. You don't choose it, friends. It's a serious thing to have a calling. But by definition, if you think about it, a calling always has a caller and a callee. Look on your phone. It's either outgoing or it's incoming. And always to party, there's a calling, a caller and a callee. Now, which one are you? Take a guess. Are you the caller or are you the callee? You're the callee. And it's a humble thing to be a callee. Some of you know we uh, used to have a long time ago a dog in our family. It was a blonde Labrador retriever named Shiloh. Shiloh was not the sharpest tool in the shed. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you something about her. She loved being called. Whenever she would call, it was like she was thinking, Oh my gosh, you're still here. You still love me. I get to spend another day with you. I'm so glad. Tell me what you want me to do. Right? Dogs are that way. Right? Dogs love to be called. You ever tried to call a cat? Anybody? Cats are actually very resistant to calling. Cats are not humble creatures. (laughs) Let me tell you why. Because they lack humility. Listen, if you want to blow off your calling, go ahead. But the New Testament actually talks about calling on three different levels. And the order here is very important. Real quick. Every calling is, first of all, calling to become. You are called, first of all, to become the person God made you to be when he put you on this earth. A calling to become the right person. Then you're called to belong. And contrary to popular thinking, calling is not this individualistic path to self-fulfillment. 
What you're called to do is be part of each other. As members of one body, you were called to peace. And then you're called to bear the kingdom. Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling you have. See, it's not just about your career. It's in the context of who I'm becoming and to whom I belong. And then there's this daily calling wherever you go, wherever your feet take you, that is where you bear the kingdom of God. Listen, and nobody in the world can say yes to your calling but you. And as a church, we are not a religious service provider. We are not the sum total of programs or how good of services we have on Sunday. We are the sum total of callings embraced. I got ordained in a denominational church about 20 years ago. Here's the way it works in this denomination. They have a group of pastors would come together and they formed what is called an interview committee. And they would ask questions of the people who were going to possibly be ordained. And one of the questions, never forget it, was, tell me the story of how you got your calling. And the idea in that tradition was to be a minister means you had a special calling. And it was kind of like a code for this mystical, emotional encounter with God, where God tells you that you're special, and you can't go into the marketplace like ordinary Christians, so you have to go work in the church. Now, that's the way it was there. So it was kind of like a two-track system. There's this track for... You know, professional ministers, and then there's everybody else. And it's very interesting because I said to the committee when they asked that question, I said, I don't believe I have a special calling. I believe that everybody who follows Jesus has a calling into ministry. I'm just one of them. Now, there were a couple pastors on that committee, and they did not like what I said. (laughs) See, they made it clear they wanted a story, and I wasn't going to give them a story And I really wasn't sure how that whole thing was going to end up. But it was so awesome because there was a pastor on that committee who grew up in the exact same church that I had grown up in all my life. He had not said a word during the whole interview. He could feel the tension of that moment. And finally, finally he spoke up and he said one thing the whole time. He said, Phil, if these guys don't want you, I'm sure some other denomination will take you. And five minutes later, I was ordained. (laughs) See, what I want you to know is your life, your job, your volunteering, the contributions you make are part of calling. As sure as Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and everyone else has had a calling, you've got it. Then God does something very special to help you live out your calling. And that is he asks you to use your gifts. Now, there's places in the Bible, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, you see what your spiritual gifts are. And they're there, just abilities to help you minister. That's what they are. Abilities to help you minister. And there's things there like administration and leadership and counseling and mercy and the gifts of helps, the gifts of of teaching. These are all things people do to minister to other people. So here's what I want you to understand. Everybody in this room, if you're a Christ follower, has one, at least one. That's why 1 Corinthians says, Now to each person have been given spiritual gifts for the common good. Here's also the thing you need to know. Every Christ follower is different. Different gifts, different gift sets. But we've all got one. What that means is, is there never should be a passive Christian. There should never be a Christian just sitting on the sidelines for any extended period of time. 
There should be no one who just comes to church and says, I'm going to sit here forever and ever and ever. There's a guy named Seth Godney. He says, your gifts are like carrots at the farmer's market at the end of the day. You either give it away or it rots. Now think about this. Jesus is our king. He's our Lord of lords. Mark says, Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, if you follow him, if you're a follower of the servant king, you can't just come and not be a part and not serve. I'm going to tell you something about spiritual gifts, and I've tried to encourage this in people for a long time. Spiritual gifts are critical for the development of your faith. Because when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and you're doing it consistent with who God made you to be and how he gifted you, I don't know if there's many things that can help you develop a deeper faith and help you experience God in your everyday life. That's just kind of personal, so take it, take it the right way, okay? Most of my spiritual gifting, most of it is around uh, teaching and communicating. There'll be some times, and this doesn't happen a lot of times by any means, but sometimes when I'm working on a message, all of a sudden there will be like words and images and stories and ideas that just begin to flow like a river. Sometimes it's so intense it's like gumballs popping out of a gumball machine and you're just trying to pop them in your mouth. And what I think sometimes in that moment is I think, God, no one in the world will know what just happened here with me and you and this little laptop. Now, sometimes it stinks. (laughs) And that's me, okay? I put that one all on me. But sometimes there's this connection and it happens. And I'm going to tell you something. It reminds me that God is still with me. And I still have a calling, and so do you. That's when some of you, when some of you are generous, and you're brought to a, a place of gratitude and humility to see how you have helped someone else, and you're not lifted up in pride, but you're actually humbled, and you sense God's presence in that, and you tear up. That's what I'm talking about. That's you being you. That's you using your gifts. It's like this special conduit. Through which the Holy Spirit flows. Please, please. The church doesn't work where we just look at a little subcategory of people and they do ministry. And then everybody else is over here. And that brings me to another thing. Not only do you have to use your gifts, but you have to embrace your ministry. Now here's the way it worked when I grew up. A bunch of people would get together to form a church. And the first thing they said was, listen... We've got to hire a minister. And they would use that kind of language. Now, the New Testament really doesn't do that, but they would. We've got to hire a minister, and he's going to do the ministry. And usually it was a he. Okay? We'll talk about that another time. We would even talk about somebody entering the ministry. You know what I'm talking about? Entering the ministry. Study the Bible, preach the gospel, visit the shut-ins, pray for the sick, lead the board, arrange the service, shepherd the flock, print the bulletin, recruit the volunteers, marry, bury, comfort, counsel, and console. He would be expected, and it generally was a he, to master theology and exegesis and homiletics and leadership, administration, finance, management, worship, arts, and nursery recruitment. Listen, friends, I have seen job descriptions that Jesus could not fill. 
Okay? That's what a minister would do. Now, what would the people do? They would watch. And they would evaluate how he was doing the ministry. And I'm going to tell you something. 99 times out of 100, it would end up in disappointment. A guy named Greg Ogden wrote a book about this. He writes and he has a letter in the book. I don't know if it's actually got sent or not. But remember when chain letters were a big deal in the email? You know, these chain letters? Well, he had one in his book and it said, Dear church member, this chain letter is meant to bring happiness to you. It does not cost you money. Simply send a copy of this letter to six other churches that are tired of their pastors. Then bundle your pastor up and send him to the church at the bottom of the list. In one week, you will receive 16,436 pastors, and one of them should work. <laughs> Have faith in his letter. One church broke the chain, and two weeks later, got their old pastor back. <laughs> Listen, the Bible is clear about this. Every believer is a minister. I want you to say that after me. Every believer is a minister. Here's a great definition of ministry. Ministry is simply using the gifts God has put inside of me to do the work God has put before me, to bless people God has put around me through the spirit God has put within me. I'd love to tell you I made that up, but I didn't. I borrowed it. Listen, there are certain people only you're going to reach. There are certain hurts in the world only you're going to reach. There are certain places in this world that only your feet can go. And they will not be touched and they will not be reached and they will not be healed. If you simply think that coming to church is a place to have your spiritual needs met. God has a ministry and an adventure for everybody. And here's what happens if you come and you don't serve. The church never becomes a part of the great mission. This is in the early church. This is what they did. They couldn't believe it. They got to thinking... You mean I can do ministry? Women can do ministry? We get to be a part? Gentiles can do ministry? We get to be a part? Aliens, foreigners can do ministry? We can be a part? And over the years, here's what's happened in the church. We try at times, but we just keep slipping back into this true two-track system. One of the reasons that... um, our senior leadership, our, our, our pastoral staff, Robbie and Matt and I, we do ministry the way we do it. Is Part of it is because we really want you to know that you can be a minister right where you are. You don't have to come on a church staff and be paid. And if you are, that's great and wonderful. And we need that. There's, there's times that has to happen. But everybody here, everybody. Next Sunday... Uh, Ray, we're talk- he was talking about this ministry tour, something we've never done. It's something brand new, taking a little bit of a risk. We're kind of stepping out on, a, on, a, on a, a bridge here, and we're doing something we've never done. And next week, we're going to help you try to understand a little better of your calling and your gifts and your ministry. I really encourage you to be here. And we'll close with this. When you finally understand mission, here's the good part, the really good part, is that One day, Jesus said, you're fully going to receive your reward. Now, I don't know how you think about this. But Jesus had some shocking things to say about serving. And one of them was, there's rewards. Now, listen, this is not bribing. Okay? 
Jesus is not trying to bribe you to get you to serve. What he's talking about here are things that are intrinsically connected to the kingdom of God. Things that we have to look forward to. Promises about our nature and our desire and about being with God through eternity. It's like when you love somebody, you dream of marrying them. This is what he's talking about. He says, to dream about the rewards that lie ahead. And it's not about payment. It's not about money. It's not about status. Jesus says it's going to be like this. He says, it's going to be like hearing, enter into the joy of your master. Man, you think about this for a second. This will blow your mind. How much joy does God have? And what will it be like one day to get up and there won't be sadness and there won't be grief and there won't be hurt and there won't be disappointment. And you will have the kind of joy that God has. If you ever get your arms and your, yourself around that, one day you will enter into that joy. And then he says, it will also be like hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Think about how good it feels when somebody comes up, Matt or Robbie or ministries or our friend or co-worker or spouse and says, man, you did, that was awesome. You did such a great job. You're such a wonderful, giving, caring person. Think about what that feels like. And then think about the God of this universe. Saying, wow. And then he said, it's going to be like somebody saying, you have been faithful over a few things. Now I'm going to put you in charge of many things. What would it be like for God through eternity to put you in charge of some stuff? Jesus said it would be like coming home. He said, you're not even going to be able to fully understand it. He said, but keep thinking about it. Keep thinking about it. Keep walking. Keep serving. But here's the decision. And we'll close with this. The decision is, it's easy to come here. And mostly our response, let's be honest. Come on, let's be honest. At lunch today, most of our response is going to be, wasn't that a pretty good sermon? Or Phil kind of stunk it up today, you know. Or, you know, the band, boy, they were awesome, you know. Isn't that normally what we do? But let me tell you something. Wouldn't a better response be, let me tell you what happened in my heart and soul this morning. Because it's pretty easy to sit in these seats. But sometime between Sunday night and next Sunday morning... Maybe late at night, maybe early in the morning, maybe when no one is around, there's this longing that crops up in you. And you want to be a part of something different. And you want to be a part of a mission. And you want to be a part of making a difference. And that's when stopping by on Sunday morning and taking notes and listening to a pretty good sermon just doesn't cut it.